Hello and welcome to episode six of the Biology of Superheroes podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Shane Campbell-Staten. We're back from a bit of a hiatus with this episode. Uh, there have been a few big changes here in the lab over the last few months, not the least of which is that we have moved. So recently, I finished up my fellowship with the National Science Foundation, and I just started as an assistant professor of biology at the University of California in Los Angeles. I'm really excited to be here at UCLA. As some of you know, my co-host, Arian Darby, has lived here in L.A. for a while now, so we're super excited to team up in person and bring you the latest and greatest in science and science fiction. Uh, we're going to be like the West Coast Avengers out here. I'm just super, super stoked. So this episode has been a long time coming. Uh, today we're going to continue our conversation about the classic movie series Jurassic Park. So back in episode four, we talked with Dr. Beth Shapiro about cloning and ancient DNA, resurrecting ancient species. And in this episode, we sit down with a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Evan Kingsley, to talk about dinosaur sounds. So Evan is a developmental biologist and a postdoctoral fellow at the Harvard Medical School, and he spends his days studying the development of a very special vocal organ in birds, the syrinx, S-Y-R-I-N-X, the syrinx. Now, I have to admit, throughout this episode, from time to time, I refer to this organ as the spherinx. I have no idea why I want to pronounce it that way, but I do, and it slips out that way from time to time, but it's the syrinx. Uh, so we talk about what dinosaurs may have sounded like and how we learn about aspects of ancient life that don't get left behind in the fossil record. So sit back, grab a snack and enjoy because the Biology of Superheroes podcast starts now. So in this episode, we're going to continue our conversation about the epic series Jurassic Park. Um, you know, the last episode um, we talked about Jurassic Park was episode four. And we sat down with Dr. Beth Shapiro and we talked about the biology of de-extinction, bringing back ancient organisms, cloning, getting ancient DNA. We went through a lot of you know, really awesome science in that episode. So a lot of our conversation in that episode revolved around the original Jurassic Park, uh, the very first movie. But obviously, there were several movies after that. Uh, Aaron, did you see, did you actually see the, you know, all of the follow-up movies after the, after the first movie? Yeah, oh yeah, totally. Definitely followed up with um, <laughs> yeah. the second one. They're all, they're all kind of like distinguished by, by moments, I guess. So Jurassic Park 2 was... Uh, T-Rex in the city, right? Like, I like to kind of think of it as, like, sex in the city, except, like, T-Rex in the city. Like, he kind of <laughs> visited the mainland. Yeah. Uh, Jurassic Park 3 was uh, cell phone cell phone Rex, but it wasn't a T-Rex. It was, like, a... What, what, what oh, was yeah. Name? It was... Um, dinosaur was crazy. It was a Spinosaurus? Had... I think it was a Spinosaurus. Yeah. Maybe it was the Spinosaurus, yeah. I don't know. I call it the, the cell phone dino. Because he like swallowed the guy's satellite phone at the beginning of the film or whatever. Well, he swallowed the guy who had the, the phone. I got yeah, it. yeah. And then throughout the movie, they like just keep playing like that that jingle, that jingle. like <laughs> <laughs> we're like, oh god, who 
who knew we'd get reception out here? And it's like, where's the phone, guys? Like, whose phone is that? And somebody's like, oh, the only person who had a phone is, oh, God, he's the stomach of a dinosaur. It's the dinosaur. And then they all freak out. So, yeah, that one was, uh, that was interesting. That, that, that whole movie was full of um, bad judgment. Yeah, just and bad decisions be- all around. Yeah, even in the world of uh, Jurassic Park. Um, but also probably ties in best to our, our guest today um, in terms of kind of some of the stuff that's going on with the conversations and, and um, communication ability with velociraptors. Uh, and then, of course, I think we both saw Jurassic World with Chris Pratt. Yeah, of course. What would you think of Jurassic World? I thought it was a cool reboot. Um, <laughs> after talking to Dr. Beth Shapiro, uh, it just twists the knife a little bit, right? Because they, you know, they, they are now taking it way beyond what the science says is already not possible currently yeah. to, hey, we have this park. It's been up and running for years and we're doing brand deals and, you know, everybody gets a T-Rex. Yeah. You, <laughs> Nike and, presents. Yeah, they, they've got like domesticated little triceratops for the kids that you can ride around on and... Yeah. <laughs> You know, like the Shamu section for that, like, big whale dinosaur that, like, comes up and eats, yeah, like, a the, great shark. Like, it's a little snack. Yeah, the uh, Mosasaurus, I think. Yeah, the Mosasaurus. So, <laughs> it was cool. And then, and then, like, everybody's new favorite pet is the Velociraptor. So, that we have this interesting, like, domestic kind of treatment of <laughs> dinosaurs where everybody's like, yeah, cool. Like, I want to... I want a pet Velociraptor now. Like, I want a relationship like Blue and, and Chris Pratt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I feel like our last episode on Jurassic Park kind of scarred you for life. I feel like every time I see you now since we recorded that, your eyes have kind of glassed over a little bit. Uh, yeah. Uh, does Does Evan know the, the truth about the park <laughs> and how not real it is? Yeah, I I think he's he's well aware. <laughs> well aware. <laughs> yeah. Just happy with his fossils. Uh, that, that's all I'm getting at. And his his uh, communication like theory in terms of restructuring, because that's as close as we're going to get computer modeling. So I recently sat down with a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Evan Kingsley, who's a developmental biologist, and uh, he's also a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard Medical School. And he has some pretty fond memories of this Jurassic Park series. And parts of, this, parts of the movie series specifically actually remind me a lot of his current work. Uh, so let's hear a little bit about his history with Jurassic Park. I don't know. When that movie came out, I felt like that was a big deal to me. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think at that point, any of us who were dinosaur kids who were really into dinosaurs when they were younger probably had been to a museum or some kind of place where they had recreated a dinosaur in its full, you know, in some kind of representation of its full flesh, like where they had, they showed you what the, not just what the bones looked like as, as fossils reconstructed and, and articulated, but also what the, maybe, you know, some interpretation of what the dinosaur itself might've looked like with skin and muscle and, and everything on top. Yeah. Uh, and in some, and in some cases I definitely remember seeing probably not in person, but maybe on television or something, a, uh, an animatronic dinosaur, you know, kind of a motorized, <laughs> like clunky kind of dinosaur that was moving from left. Its head was moving from left, some apatosaurus or something. It's a head moving from left to right really slowly it opens up its jaws like, 
Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah right. Exactly. Um, and I, I mean, even then, I think that I remember thinking oh, this is really cheesy, but also totally amazing. Yeah. And then, I mean, as a six-year-old, like, what else do you want to see? Nothing else. Nothing else. Literally. And then, yeah, and then you see Jurassic Park on TV or uh, in the in the big screen, which I definitely did, and it was amazing. And these dinosaurs were, you know, it's like. It's almost like seeing it in real life. It's really cool. Yeah. You kind of have a longer history with Jurassic Park, though, because you actually read the books before the movie. I did. Um, so when the book came out in 1990, I think, um, uh, I was eight years old. And I remember my dad, uh, who w- would was going on trips for, for work. And so he would always bring home these kind of bestsellers from the airport because like, he would go to the airport he'd be flying somewhere and he would just buy a book in the airport bookstore. And so he was buying all these like, you know, kind of pulpy, like Michael Crichton and, uh, you know, uh, uh, who's the guy who wrote the client, John Grisham, like, like John Grisham <laughs> yeah. novels, you know, things like this, things that eventually got turned, all got turned into movies. Um, but, uh, and I, but I remember him sitting on the couch reading Jurassic park, I think probably after he got back from one of these trips, he hadn't finished it yet. And I remember seeing the cover like the best, an amazing cover, you know, it's just that profile of the T-Rex, um, uh, like our, the, the, the T-Rex skull. Yeah. The um, articulated skull. The articulated, yes. Yeah, fossil, uh, like skeleton of the T-Rex. Yeah. You can just, it's just looking at it from the side on the white background. And, uh, and I remember seeing that and, and, and as a dinosaur kid really wanting to know what is this book about? You know, I gotta know. And I remember him just saying something vague, like, Oh, it's about this, Thing, place where they bring dinosaurs back to life. Are you kidding me? Dinosaurs back to life? I gotta read this book. <laughs> you know, but of course I was like eight, right? And the and the book, and I read it, I think when I was probably about 10, so maybe a, a year or two, be, maybe about a year before the, the, the movie came out. Yeah. It's not exactly like made for kids though. No, no, no. I, I, this was, I think this was the first book I read that had um, swear words in it, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. which I was astounded by, I can tell you right now. But then also, um, uh, it was also there were also there are also graphic depictions of like there there's maybe this is not this is uh, not ruining anything I think everybody's probably seen this movie but there's a there's a uh, the character uh, Dennis Nedry who's like the the kind of um, computer guy uh, who I think is I can't wait he's played by uh, the guy who plays Newman on Seinfeld yeah Wayne Wayne Knight yeah um, in the movie and he. In the movie, he is he is um, he is uh, eaten by these I think Dilophosaurus, and it's, it's same in the book. But in the book, um, there is a graphic description of him holding his own intestines as the Dilophosaurus eviscerate him. And I remember <laughs> being extremely affected by this, just thinking this was absolutely horrifying. Um, I mean, because I think I was like 11 years old, right? Yeah. Uh, but it had he had a huge huge impression on me, and it was I mean definitely I remember thinking it was really really. Uh, it was really interesting, uh, and 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 it definitely was. I think as a kid, uh, it's hard to say what, to what degree, the Jurassic Park, the book and movie influenced my decision to become a scientist. But it is kind of cool now that uh, we're studying in our lab. You know, we're studying living dinosaurs, birds, but also, you know, using those living dinosaurs to try to infer things about about extinct dinosaurs uh it is cool that it's kind of coming full circle um from from my 10 year old self to my however old i am now so yeah that's amazing man 
Yeah, so I mean, it sounds like Evan maybe has just a few years on us, but a similar sense of wonder and awe and respect for all things dinosaur and just what Jurassic Park brought to the scene. Uh, you know, you got to imagine that, like, this movie uh, and the book as well probably single handedly reignited an interest in the field of pa- like paleontology. And yeah. All things like dinosaur science related. Like, I was not even, like, a kid that was that deep into things like that, but I even kind of got, like, a little fossil kit and, like, some sort of, like, a little model set with dinosaurs, and I was painting sculptures and stuff and just doing all all these things with, um, uh, you know, the dinosaurs that came out of the movie because you were just so transfixed and just kind of inspired by... Uh, seeing them come to life for the first time. Uh, and I think that's what the film series really did. Yeah, so I think even now, right, I remember um, reading this report. You know, nowadays, you know, I think science can be, you know, somewhat politicized and can be, you know, you know a lot of areas like evolutionary biology, for instance, um, you know, which I do, you know, can be somewhat contentious, you know, like science versus religion. And, you know, I think a lot of studies show that, you know, there's this sort of left-right divide about, you know, a lot of different aspects of science, except one subject, and that is dinosaurs. Like, everyone universally loves and wants to learn about dinosaurs. And I would not be surprised if Jurassic Park was, like, played a huge role in, you know, that resurgence and, like, continuation of interest in dinosaurs. Yeah, so one of the things that... um you know, that Evan brought up that really interested me was this idea of using living species to learn about extinct species, right? So, you know, when we think about extinct species, you know, we think about paleontology, we think about the bones, you know, as well we should, because that is what mostly fossilizes, right? Those are the the hard parts that get left behind. Um, But, you know, movies like Jurassic Park get us wondering you know, a lot of the time about other aspects of biology of these extinct species that don't get left behind in the fossil record, right? So things like how animals, um, like how animals actually walked around or how they communicated, um, you know, how they, you know, how they functioned physiologically. Were dinosaurs warm-blooded or were they cold-blooded? Uh, what did they sound like? Right. All these questions, you know, are really, really hard to answer based on on bones. They're essentially impossible to answer just based on bones. So that brings up this question of, you know, how can we learn more about the biology of these extinct creatures? And one way to go about that is to use living species to learn about ancient species. And there's two major ways that we can go about doing that. One is through the field of phylogenetics, right, which is basically... Um, looking at the relationships amongst living species, what we call extant species, uh, and then using that tree of life, right, what we call a phylogeny, a phylogenetic tree, using that tree of life as a puzzle, right? And then we treat some of these ancient branches as puzzle pieces that are missing, right? But by filling in around those missing lineages, we can gain information about uh, how an organism, you know, may have moved or, you know, how they may have looked, whether or not, you know, they had specific types of coloration, what they may have sounded like, etc. Yeah, and the other way of doing this is through evolutionary developmental biology or evo-devo. Evo-devo is a field that merges studies of evolution with developmental biology to try to understand 
the mechanisms that produce the patterns that we see across the tree of life, right? And so then we can use this idea of Evo Devo to then, again, not only fill in those gaps of how ancient species may have functioned, right, but also try to identify the mechanisms by which those changes have, have occurred. All right, so in, in Evo Devo, they have this saying that is probably one of my favorite sayings in all of evolutionary biology. Uh, and that saying is that ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. Now, basically what that means is that the developmental progression of an organism essentially mimics its phylogenetic history. If you take humans, for instance, there are, you know, there's a point right before we're born where humans have lanugo or, you know, what we call lanugo, which is essentially full body hair, like our closest primate relatives. If we go a little bit, you know, earlier in development, there's a point at which we develop a tail, right? Like our sort of slightly more distantly related simian relatives. And if we go even farther back, there's a point in time where we develop gills, you know, like our, you know, fish relatives. And, you know, so our developmental history um, mimics our, uh, our evolutionary history, right? And that's what we mean when we say ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. So Evan and his colleagues are using these basic principles to understand how birds vocalized. And we know that, you know, birds are the modern descendants of, of dinosaurs. Uh, and they're also trying to understand how more ancient lineages of birds vocalized. So one of the things that he told me about is the evolution of this specialized vocal organ that only birds have called the spherings. Um, so we use a larynx, our sort of voice box to, to communicate, but birds have a, a different organ that they use to communicate. And this is what he and his colleagues have been, uh, have been studying. So Evan told me about his work studying this organ uh, in birds and what it might tell us about the lives of dinosaurs. I was wondering if you could, you could talk a little bit about the sort of methods that that scientists are using to draw conclusions about ancient animals from, from modern biodiversity. Yeah. Well, I would say the first thing, uh, that first thing that we can use, and, and this is the kind of the approach that we're taking is to use the only living, the only remaining dinosaurs that we have access to that are still alive, i.e. birds, um, and try to understand how their vocal system works. The, the, shape, the way that the shape of the vocal organ in different birds determines what sounds they can make, mm -hmm. right? So if you go out in the wild, you look at a bunch of different bird species, their, their syrinx, the, the organ they use to, to make sounds, is shaped in all sorts of different ways in different species. So a crow's syrinx is totally different from, it looks, it looks really, really different from, say, like, you know, an ostrich's syrinx. Mm. And that or, different shape gives a different sort of vocalization properties. Right. So, well, so, so this is the thing is, is we know that they, they sing different songs. An ostrich makes a, that doesn't even really sing a song. An ostrich makes a weird croaky sound. Yeah. Can, uh, can, but, you, you know, can you tell me what, what, what does the ostrich sound like? No, I can't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping, I was hoping you'd give it a shot just for entertainment. Uh, no, sake. I know. I know. The thing is that, the thing is that like, I mean, ostriches make, I don't know, they make all sorts of, uh, uh, I feel like. I actually have no idea what an ostrich sounds like. They make a bunch of different sounds. Ostriches do make a, a closed mouth 
vocalization. Okay. So they 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 actually they inflate they inflate part of their throat and they make a like a mm, mm, sound. I got um, you to make the sound. I know you did. <laughs> I you see, that's, a problem. <laughs> that's a problem. Um, but yeah, they I mean they make wild sounds like that. Uh huh. But uh, but they do they. You know, they have a syrinx. It's shaped differently from, say, a crow's syrinx or from a parrot's syrinx. So, and what about what about alligators? So, so for those who who don't who don't know, so alligators are actually more closely alligators and all of the crocodilians um, are more closely related to birds than they are to other reptiles. So they're more closely related right. to birds than they are to like lizards or snakes. Um, or any of the the other other reptiles, and right. crocodilians actually also have a really wide range of vocalizations. Um, yeah, you know, for those who might be interested, one of I think one of the coolest vocalizations is actually are actually made by males of several different crocodilian species. It's a very deep bellow, and it's actually so you wanna, deep, huh? Do, do you want to do it? What? Oh man, I don't. I don't, I don't think <laughs> the thing is I can't do it. Because it's right. so deep, right? And it's right. actually it's yeah. so deep that it makes the uh, it actually makes the water um, like so they make these vocalizations in the water, and it's so deep that it actually makes the water dance on their backs. It like ripples up and down. It's actually it's really so beautiful. Cool. Um, so I'm cool. sure uh, you could you could Google it and 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 find some find some great images. But crocodilians. You know they're they're not birds, um, and so I'm assuming they do, they also don't have this specialized organ. They, they, they do not. They um, they use uh, a laryngeal sound source, so that they, they have vocal folds in their larynx, just like we do. Okay, so they make so, they they make their sounds the same way that we we speak. They, they are they make sounds more yeah. The way they make sounds is much more similar to us than it is to birds. Okay. Even though they're more closely related to birds. Exactly right. So what this tells us is that sometime between the common ancestor of birds and crocodilians and the common ancestor of birds, this is, this is many, many millions of years, of course, Mm -hmm. but the common ancestor of all birds had a syrinx based sound source. The common ancestor of birds and crocodilians didn't presumably did not. Hmm. So and dinosaurs are somewhere in between there. And dinosaurs are somewhere in between. So somewhere in between, that's all, really all we know right now is that somewhere in between, they evolved, they shifted from making a sound with their larynx to making a sound with this totally new organ, the syrinx, that okay. doesn't exist in any other living animal. So when did it happen? We don't know. But, it, but it's, it's pl- certainly plausible that it happened sometime you know, it, it definitely happened sometime during the evolution of dinosaurs, and we just don't know when. Okay. Yeah, so obviously, as you can see, like the work of Evan and his colleagues on this specialized vocal organ got me thinking a lot about the Jurassic Park series. And so, so much so that I actually did a little bit of research about how they made the sounds from Jurassic Park, right? So, I mean, if we don't know what a dinosaur sounded like, like where, where did they come up with all these really cool, epic sounds that the dinosaurs actually made? And the answer is actually really kind of hilarious. So essentially they did a bunch of unique mashups of, you know, different animals to create 
you know each dinosaur species sound in the movie like for for instance the the raptors You know, they made like some combination of goose sounds and like mating tortoise sounds, you know, to to get the vocalizations of the raptors, the uh, Dilophosaurus, which, you know, the I'm sure people remember like the spitting dinosaur from the first movie. Uh, It's a combination of a rattlesnake and a hawk. And the T-Rex is that part of the T-Rex vocalizations is actually based on a baby elephant, which is kind of crazy. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, but, it, you know, this idea of like understanding vocalizations of ancient species got me specifically thinking about Jurassic Park 3. A big part of that story revolves around velociraptor vocalizations right so in the beginning of the movie dr grant is sitting down with uh dr ellie sadler and they're reminiscing about the vocalizations that they heard throughout the events of the first movie and at this point he's become somewhat obsessed with their communication it seems like so what are you working on now raptors mostly my favorite do you remember the sounds they made i try not to all our theories about raptor intelligence, what they were capable of, we weren't even close. Tell me. Well, we did cranial scans of a fossil skull. We found what looks like a very sophisticated resonating chamber. Wait a second. So we were right. I mean, they had the ability to vocalize. I'm convinced it's the key to their social intelligence. Which explains why they could work together as yeah. a team. And coordinate their attacks so they probably wouldn't know what was going on. They could talk to each other. To a degree we never imagined. <sighs> Ellie, they were smart. They were smarter than dolphins or whales. They were smarter than primates. Yeah, and then later in the movie, you know, he has this... It's unclear whether or not um, Billy Brennan is a graduate student or an associate professor or a research assistant, but this underling of his, Billy Brennan, 3D, uh, 3D prints a vocal chamber and they use it to recreate raptor calls. Right? And this got me wondering a lot about how realistic this is. Yeah, one of the things I found interesting about movies one and three was just the amount of science involved. And you can tell that in Jurassic Park 3 when Dr. Grant is over at Dr. Sadler's house, uh, you know, he's almost on the verge of a new breakthrough, it seems like, in terms of the communication, like you just mentioned. And, uh, you know, they're talking about raptors and their resonating chamber and the fossil skull and this ability to kind of vocalize uh, and work together as a team when they're out there as a pack. Uh, just speaks to the fact of how highly intelligent they were. Uh, and I think even in the film, they're described as being smarter than dolphins, whales, and even potentially primates. So uh, you have this really ferocious creature that's highly intelligent and socially sophisticated uh, and essentially equipped with what had to be an evolutionary advantage at that time. So, um, you know, I I think it just speaks to the longevity uh, of just the raptor and fascination around that creature as one of the like coolest dinosaurs, I think, since 
sort of the the beginning of the Jurassic Park series, even all the way through to Jurassic World. Everyone loves raptors uh, as much as they are equally horrified by them, but they are (laughs) by far everyone's favorite dinosaur because they're just so cool. Um, And, you know, I think uh, life imitates art in a lot of ways, where as the fascination with raptors has grown, I'm sure a lot of the science around studying them has evolved and pointed to new and exciting sort of discoveries about them, which is in turn fed back into that fascination. So, um, you know, that's pretty cool. Yes. Yeah, so- Another thing I want to point out as well is that Jurassic Park, even technologically in terms of what they're talking about in the films, was seemingly ahead of its time for the audience like this movie featured 3d printing back in 2001 yeah that's just crazy i think people are barely starting to wrap their heads around the existence of 3d printing now like it's it's catching on you know maybe in some hobby enthusiast circles where people have their own 3d printers at home and they're doing stuff and obviously in the scientific community it's 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 making big headway but it's still not like a mainstream thing like not everybody has a 3d printer at home and they're not just like you know cranking out random things to replace around the house and so on and so forth uh so back in 2001 you know i i can't quite even recall how i felt about it but when i probably saw it i don't even know if that struck me as something that was like believably happening or if that was movie magic like the the line was a lot thinner there or, or i just wasn't even quite sure what was going on but i kind of accepted it with the narrative of what was happening i'm like sure okay you know he just made like a dinosaur kazoo out of like a machine. <laughs> so i think um you definitely bring up a great point with the 3d printing because i think at the time that the movie at the time that jurassic park 3 came out I think that was still pretty science fiction-y, right? The idea of not only having a 3D printer, but taking it out into the field, right? It wasn't like they were in a lab somewhere. They, you know, they basically, you know, went straight into the ground and like 3D printed, you know, the chamber of a, you know, of a fossil like in the ground, which is pretty crazy. And, but since that time, you know, now 3D printers, you know, a lot of people in, you know, that study functional morphology, um, that study paleontology, that study developmental biology are using 3D printing on a, on a pretty regular, uh, pretty regular basis. Um, and I actually, so I asked Evan a little bit more about this velociraptor chamber, this like vocalization chamber that we see in the movie and how it lines up with what we know about dinosaur communication. Yeah. So it's unclear exactly how those uh, velociraptors in the movie are are uh, are vocalizing. So uh-huh. when I say vocalizing, I mean um, uh, where their vibratory tissue is, uh-huh. right? So like like ours is in our larynx, in our kind of in our our necks near our mouths, uh, whereas birds have it much farther down in their kind of in their chests, um, in the syrinx, and it's not clear where the actual vibration is happening. Mm. Right. So that, that part is, they actually, the the movie doesn't discuss at all. They, they are producing this. I think, uh, the, I think Billy, Billy, the graduate student or Billy, the, whatever he is, um, (laughs) calls it a, calls it a, a a resonating chamber, I think, or something. Um, and so, this is the thing that, that you know, I don't, as far as I know, uh, I'm not a paleontologist, but as far as I know, there, there's no evidence that velociraptors or any other 
theropod dinosaur had this kind of resonating chamber in their skulls. So my sense is that is based on, the, in the movie, they show a, 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 an image of a velociraptor, a kind of profile of a velociraptor skull, and they show this, uh, inside of it, this resonating chamber, uh, a representation of this resonating chamber. Uh-huh. And, and that's the thing that he prints. And so the idea there probably is that there's a vibration that happens somewhere either in the larynx or in the syrinx, but it's unclear where. That, um, that sound ends up traveling through some airway passages, nasal passages or something, in the skull, which um, in, this, in this fictional representation allows some additional additional resonation of the sound so that the sound is actually resonating inside the skull uh, allowing it to become to have some different quality to to um then it would just be produced from the okay. vibration alone to like Does that be, make sense? To like something to like you know be louder or to travel farther yeah or... i mean it's in the same way like okay think about if you're blowing across the top of a bottle mm-hmm. right you know you're 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 causing this you're using this resonating chamber, the bottle, to make a sound that an additional sound that wasn't there when when the air came out of your mouth. Right? Yes. So um, it's kind of like that's. I think that's that's the that's the that's a sort of a similar idea to what I think is what they are proposing in the, in Jurassic Park Three okay. uh, might be happening with the with the, uh, the the these dinosaurs. And I should say that this has been proposed in the scientific literature for. Um, I guess they're for uh, lambiosaurs. Uh, had, had these hadros, these actually these specific type of lambiosaurs called hadrosaurs um, that have these huge crests on their head. These big, like, kind of uh, uh, their their skulls have these these really tall. They're not horns, but they're basically part of their skull that kind of extends back off the top yeah. of their heads. We actually see and, these in, in Jurassic Park, right? Yeah, they're, absolutely. They're absolutely. Um, sort of one of, one of the, the sort of flocking species that kind of have like a duck bill. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Hadrosaurs are, they kind of have a duck bill and they, um, and they have this, uh, this really, these really big crests. And, and, and the, part of the, one of the hypotheses for why these crests exist is that they're actually uh, used as, resonating chambers the, the, the crests actually com, com, uh, contain some part of the the nasal passage and that they uh, the nasal cavity and so they actually may be acting as a resonating chamber in the skulls of these of these hadrosaurs now it's a little bit of a stretch to say to suggest that these resonating chambers existed in other dinosaurs uh, where where there's no evidence that the, that the nasal passages are, you know, uh, uh, yeah, they have this very extremely specialized morphology. <laughs> yeah. The morphology of the, of the velociraptor nasal passages, as far as I know, like I said, caveat, not a paleontologist, yeah. but, um, but, uh, I'm not aware of any, of any literature that, that, uh, that suggests that there's lots, that there are resonating chambers in the velociraptor skull. Um, and I should say also in the movie, right. They, they actually, when Billy at the beginning of the movie and doing it, at the end of the movie, Dr. Grant blows through this resonating chamber uh-huh. with their lips, right? And it seems like they're kind of playing it like a trumpet or something, right? Like they're kind of pursing their lips and vibrating their lips yeah. against it, like a trumpet mouthpiece. 
um, it, it's, it's un, it seems unlikely to me that that would produce the same sound as, let's say, a larynx would produce if it was at the bottom of, you know, you, you, the larynx is, is vibrating a column of air between the larynx and this resonating chamber in the skull. Okay. Hypo hypothetical re resonating chamber in the skull. Uh, that would make a different sound from if you put the, the, the vibratory tissue right against the resonating chamber. Mm. Right. So this is like, this would be like, uh, you know, y this is like blowing through a trumpet to make a trumpet like sound versus trying to put your lips, you know, like on the other end of the trumpet, basically like, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. you, the, the vibratory tissue has to be at the right spot for it to make the same yeah. sound. So it's and the so, whole, it's the whole system, you know, that sort of yeah. works together. Everything from the, you know, from the lungs through the, you know, through the, you know, through the bronchi, like the distance yeah. between the lungs and the resonant and this hypothetical resonating chamber, all that stuff works together as a system to produce a very specific sound. So if you take out one piece and then you just try to run, run wind, uh, just like try to blow through it, you, you get something right. completely different. So essentially what, yeah. what you're saying is that they would have all, but when he tried that, <laughs> the velociraptors would not have been confused at all. And they would just, it would have just eaten the whole crew is what you're saying. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to prove that that would have happened, but uh. it's a working hypothesis. So given what Evan said, it seems like this vocalization chamber that we see in the movie, this Raptor vocalization chamber, uh, it's pretty cool, but it's, it seems to be pure fiction more or less. Right. So as, as far as we know, at least, uh, they took a little bit of artistic license there. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it's, uh, much less of a resonating, cha resonating chamber, uh, and also much less of a kazoo and maybe more of a trumpet. I'm not sure which is <laughs> we're referencing here, but, uh, you know, I, I think in lieu of taking the time to really get into the science and keeping the movie moving along, I, I get why certain decisions were made, but it, it's interesting to dig into the science a little bit more and sort of hear the specifics of what actually, uh, may have occurred back in sort of a, an evolutionary perspective with raptors but uh it also sounds like the jury's still out and um we, we're kind of still figuring out what the answer is yeah absolutely absolutely and you know but even given that right this idea that you could potentially take an ancient organ right and build a model of it like we see in the movie and then pass air through that model and try to understand communication that has not been heard in millions of years really, really intrigues me. And it turns out that this is pretty much exactly what Evan's colleagues are doing to gain a clearer insight into the sounds that are, that were produced by ancient birds. Uh, so let, let's hear what he had to say about that. So we sort of have, you know, the layout for sort of our understanding in, in this field of sort of dinosaur vocalization, which seems to still kind of be in its, in its infancy. It seems like we still don't For know sure. a whole lot about it. And, you know, but while we're talking about communication, um, if I'm not mistaken, there is someone who's trying to use um, this sort of dinosaur version or there's like older, like more ancient versions of, of the spherings and actually like making, like active models of these things and like running air through them. Is that, is that correct? For sure. Yeah. So, so we, um, 
our group at, at uh, uh, that studies that we, we studied the development that by kind of how this how these structures form in the embryo mm-hmm. of modern birds, but we are collaborating with paleontologists and also these um, really really talented and and smart uh, vocal physiologists. So these people are they're one of their main things is to try to understand how birds make the sound that they make like the physics of actually you know these these vocal flaps that that are vibrating against each other how that uh how that changes the airflow and how the vibrations of those things actually produce a sound you know physically mm-hmm. um which is a very complicated physics problem um the fluid dynamics of airflow in a complicated uh, through a complicated structure um it is not is not simple yeah, it's a and lot so of these people are, physics absolutely no you know and this involves lots of lots of uh, computational very powerful computational methods uh where they're simulating how this airflow works and how the different strains of the airflow affect the shapes of the airways anyway it's all very complicated but the the thing is that you know their whole reason for their, the whole their, their whole study study uh, the, the whole kind of background of what they study is is all about uh, how sound production works, and and different parts of the group study study it in birds or in um, in, in humans, or or in um, and, but now they're starting to get into in collaboration with us and 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 our paleontologist friends, uh, they're get starting to get into these ancient bird uh, morphologies and trying to understand, you know, if, if we can understand how those ancient bird morphologies might have generated sound and what they might have sounded like. Mm-hmm. So the first step to doing that is generating a physical model of a syrinx, and we can use modern uh, morphologies, modern shapes of, of, of bird syrinxes. Uh-huh. Do, you, um, do, you, do they get 3D printed like they do in Jurassic Park 3? Well, I'll tell you what. We, we have a 3D printed model of the fossil, this fossil syrinx, the, the ancient syrinx that I was telling you about before, uh-huh. the one that they put the, they got from the CT scan. Yeah. Um, we have a 3D printed version of the cartilage. It's pretty cool, actually. Have, have um, you tried to, to, to blow into it to see what kind of sound it made? <laughs> uh, I have to say I haven't. Partly, partly because, it turns out, right, the thing that, you know, it was hard enough to find the fossil cartilage. Uh-huh. But the thing we really don't know is what the soft tissue, what the actual vocal folds looked like and uh. what their shape was. And that probably also has a huge, imp- I mean, we know actually that has a huge influence on what the sound sounded like. So we're, we're part of the way there, but we still don't know what those soft tissues look like. So we've learned a lot about the vocalizations of modern birds and we're beginning to gain an understanding of the vocalizations in ancient birds. But this field of what I'll call paleobioacoustics is still in its infancy and we still know pretty much nothing about the sounds of true non-avian dinosaurs so i asked evan what we would need to do to make that jump in our understanding and actually figure out what dinosaurs sounded like do you think we'll ever get to a point where we actually have a working understanding or like a realistic representation of what a velociraptor or a tyrannosaurus or a hadrosaur actually sounded like? 
I mean, it would require finding, I think it would really would require finding a fossil of a non-bird dinosaur syrinx or larynx or anything like that. So we haven't found this yet. We haven't found it yet. Okay. Um, and I, I think if we found, if we found a, 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 you know, a non-avian, a non-bird theropod dinosaur, say, a, you know, T-Rex or something that had, uh, that had a, uh, if we, and we found it had to be, it would have to be very, very well preserved. But let's say we found that very well, very, very well preserved fossil and, uh, in that fossil, there were, you know, there were the, the cartilages of the airway preserved in there, and we could CT scan the whole thing and find it. Um, I, I, you know, that, that would be a step towards understanding. If, if we could see there that, that it had this syrinx space, the syrinx like structure, you know, that would be a step towards understanding the vocalization of a, of a, of, of, you know, non-bird dinosaurs. And, 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 you know, it, it would suggest that they're much, you know, again, much more like modern birds, uh, than were, was traditionally thought. And this is a thing that, you know, in the, in the last 15 or 20 years, people have really started to learn that a lot of non-bird dinosaurs had what looked like feathers mm-hmm. or, right. And, and things that people didn't realize, uh, probably evolved earlier than, and modern birds uh, uh, and were present in these in these very scary dinosaurs may, may have also had some kind of fluffy feathers on them yeah uh, so uh, so you know we've only learned that in the, fairly recently and so who knows you know maybe they were they were more like more like modern birds in other ways too so it seems like basically a, a lot of this will depend on luck all right so yeah, in order for us to really understand, you know, what these organs, like what these vocalization organs look like in dinosaurs, you know, we would have to find a very well-preserved specimen and, you know, and then make a model based on that specimen to just begin to understand, you know, what they may have sounded like. Yeah, and this may seem a bit far-fetched, but, you know, like Evan said, we've been getting pretty lucky recently with some amazing findings about dinosaurs, you know, that have really sort of changed the way that we understand the way that dinosaurs work. Yeah. And even since, you know, this first Jurassic, even since the first Jurassic Park movie uh, came out, you know, we've learned that, you know, dinosaurs may have looked very different than they, you know, than they're depicted in that movie. For instance, they may have all had feathers. We, you know, there's a lot of evidence now um, that many dinosaur species, including theropod dinosaurs uh, like uh, Velociraptors and you know maybe even T-Rex, uh, had basic feathers. Yeah, you know, a, a couple things here. Um, the idea about luck and uh, sort of over time stumbling upon or or coming across the evidence that you need to take the next scientific step forward. Uh, you know, I read somewhere even in the of the original Jurassic Park film, Steven Spielberg wanted Velociraptors to be about ten feet tall, but at the time the science didn't support that assertion that they could reach that height. However, during production, they actually discovered 
a raptor in Utah, I imagine, because it ended up, ended up being named the, the Utah Raptor, I believe, oh. uh, that was actually 10 feet tall uh, and sort of fell into the range that Spielberg his raptors at. So that's pretty cool. Um, you know, the second thing is the idea about how these uh, dinosaurs are, you know, more and more increasingly becoming and appearing to be a lot more related to birds uh, and then maybe the reptilian side of the spectrum in terms of their appearance and some of their feature sets. And, uh, you know, in the first film, Dr. Grant, uh, you know, is actually kind of taking a look at an image of a raptor. Uh, and this kind of goes back again to sort of how Jurassic Park has always been technologically ahead of its time. Uh, they had this little machine in the first film where they were basically able to um, discharge a, I don't even know, a pulse into the ground. And then that pulse emanated a wave uh, which essentially bounced off of the bones in the ground and, you know, sent back an image, I guess, kind of like a, a radar detections type thing. Yeah, uh, some, some sort some, of fancy some, sonar or something like yeah, that. Yeah, some sort of a sonar sort of bouncing technology and essentially uh, up on the computer screen imaged the entire, uh, you know, structure of a raptor. And he was looking at it and he was talking about the bone structure and saying how you know, some of it matched uh, what you'd find in modern-day birds to the point that he kind of commented offhand that he was surprised that, or he wouldn't be surprised, rather, to hear that or find out that those animals didn't just take off and fly. Uh, it, it seems so much similar to that that he, you know, could hypothesize and imagine they weren't too evolutionarily far away from that ability. Uh, and then I, I think what most people remember from that scene is the young kid coming in saying, well, it looks like a giant turkey to me. And then <laughs> yeah. like, takes out his claw and like pretends to kill him and talks about, you know, <laughs> holding your intestines and like watching yourself die as they eat you because you'd be very much alive. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, he said to have a little bit more respect for these animals. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, how about that for a giant turkey for you? Uh, so, I think that's interesting that the the science is kind of confirming that, and you know, it, these animals could have very well been covered in bird feathers and, and so on and so forth. But I think the main thing I'm getting at, and that I'd like to see, despite all the warnings, um, cause, you know, Dr. Grant said, you know, some of the, you know, worst things have been done with the best intentions. But I don't care. I want to see Jurassic Park come to life. Like <laughs> I want the park. Yeah. The real film. There are two things that are on my bucket list, and I think people, you know, step their bucket list and they want to say, you know, achievable stuff like, I want to go to Italy, and, you know, I want to scuba dive in the Great Barrier Reef, but I want to go to space, and I want Jurassic Park. Those are the two things I want to see in my lifetime. I get the warnings. I don't care. Like, I watched Apollo 13 blow up. I've seen all the Jurassic, Par Jurassic Parks. Like, someone fat is going to get spat on. Someone in the bathroom's privacy is going to get interrupted. Like, someone black is going to die. But I don't care. Sign me up. Like, yeah. let's go. Because there's a lot to learn, and I want to learn it before I die. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough, man. Um, <laughs> so, I, 
I want to, uh, so before we leave, um, I asked Evan a little bit about, about superpowers and uh, what he thinks uh, his would be. Uh, so let's hear what he had to say about that. One more question that I have for you. Oh, no. If you had any superpower, <laughs> what would it be and why? Oh, man. That's really hard. No, sorry. When you say any superpower. If you could have any superpower. So this is not like superpowers as they are, uh, uh, the superpowers that have been described in comic books. This is no. any. If any you could have absolutely any superpower that your imagination could think of, what oh, would yeah. it be? And why? The why is an important question. Sure, sure, of course. Uh, so in the spirit of our conversation, I have to say, it would be hard for me to say no to time travel. Okay. Because, first of all, we could learn a lot about the stuff that we're studying now. If we could <laughs> just true. go back and look, it would be so easy. That's you true. Know? Just go back with your notebook, maybe take a video. That's right. I'll bring a, I'll bring a scalpel and you know, some, some forceps and we can do some dissections. It'd be yeah. great. But I should, I, you know, we should keep in context Jurassic Park 3, man. You, well, when, I was going to say... When the you know, graduate you know, student went and, or the assistant went and, <laughs> and stole the eggs, it did not. It did not pan out well. I was just gonna say that's exactly that would be exactly the problem. You know, it, like I spend half of my day, uh, uh, almost every day, look, opening up the eggs of uh, of fertile, you know, fertile fertilized bird eggs, and and it, that would be the way to study it. You want to get your hands on some of those fertilized dinosaur eggs, but I would not want to be chased by velociraptors. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Uh, no matter so what they that, sounded like. That's right, exactly. That would be, that would be a point. Um, so, so, the, so the why is, uh, for, certainly one of the reasons why would be definitely to, to, to learn a lot more about extinct organisms. We could, you know, that, that would, in some ways it would take some of the fun out of it, but it would probably be cool enough that it would be totally worth it. Yeah, yeah I'm sure you definitely get a few high-impact papers uh, out, of, <laughs> out of that study. If anything, for, for actually creating a time machine. Right? <laughs> well, right, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Time travel reveals insights yeah. about would be the way that my element of papers start. Yeah. But it, it also um, suggests that you've learned absolutely nothing from any of the time-traveling <laughs> science fiction that has ever been produced because it never turns out well. Listen, I saw... <laughs> I mean, things were fine at the end of Back to the Future Part 3, so I, I assume everything could be okay. That's true. That's true. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and on a smaller scale, you know, that, that does raise questions about the temptation of... Uh, of you know going back in time within one's own life and 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 trying to modify certain decisions that one made in the past i, I i'd like to think that i could resist that temptation and, and only use it for for knowledge you know of yeah. knowledge gain but only use your powers for good what's so tempting yeah i know <laughs> with with great power comes great responsibility evan yeah there you go <laughs> didn't learn anything else from spider-man awesome well thank you so much man for your time yeah, no, thank you. This was fantastic. Awesome. Really enjoyed. I know we didn't get too into to comics into this episode, uh, but it was great to hear uh, Evan's choice on a superpower, uh, if he were able to have one. And uh, just one random fun fact that I noticed in the credits here with uh, Jurassic World. So the character that represents the company man from Engine, sort of the, uh, you know, the blood money company and the the dinosaur 
creation game who's always looking to kind of weaponize dinosaurs or kind of use them for military tactics or whatever. Uh, the guy that played um, that character, uh, and I believe it was Hoskins, Vic Hoskins was his character in the movie uh-huh. in Jurassic uh, The actor is Vincent D'Onofrio, or D'Onofrio, not sure how to say it, but <laughs> he also played Kingpin Wilson Fisk in the Daredevil series on Netflix. Uh, just way like to bring it back. Transformation in terms of just acting ability. I had no idea until I saw the name because I was just like, man, this guy is, he is an actor's actor, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. That's, that's how we tie the two worlds together. <laughs> you, you show some serious dedication in getting that back to comic books just now. <laughs> I was wondering where you were going with it. Biology of superheroes. We did it again. Uh, done. Done. Although uh, some people don't know this, but Jurassic Park itself was also a comic book series. Um, so Jurassic Park Redemption um, was released in uh, 2010. Um, features all the classic Jurassic Park characters. Uh, so if you're interested in reading about Jurassic Park in graphic novel form, you should uh, check out Jurassic Park Redemption. It's a five-part series. Awesome. Sounds like a good time. Yeah. And also, I didn't have to go that far around to get back to comic books. I just want to point that out. Efficiency. That's where science gets you. We'll see what the people think of. I think my fact <laughs> is a bit <laughs> Okay, fair enough. Well, as always, man, it's great to have you on. Pleasure joining you as always. And I can't wait to talk more about this stuff in the future episode. All right, let's do it. I'll see you back in the lab. Sounds good, man. Take care. Peace. I really hope you enjoyed episode six of the Biology of Superheroes podcast. Uh, The Jurassic Park series is one of my all-time favorite science fiction pieces. Uh, So it was a lot of fun exploring that universe. And we've got a lot more sci-fi ahead in the next month. So in celebration of Halloween, we're bringing you a very special episode of of the Biology of Superheroes podcast, our first crossover event. So for the Halloween episode, we're teaming up with the brilliant ladies of This Podcast Will Kill You, Dr. Aaron Welsh and Dr. Aaron Allman Updike. So if you've been under a rock somewhere and you have not heard This Podcast Will Kill You yet, I strongly, strongly suggest you get into it immediately. It's all about the history and biology of diseases. So it's some of the most charming and disgusting conversation you could ever hope to hear. Uh, We're getting together to bring you a special two-part Halloween crossover all about zombies. We'll talk about some classic zombie science fiction, including The Walking Dead and World War Z. Uh, We'll chat about epidemics and real-life zombification that happens all across the tree of life, including in humans. And if that's not enough for you, you can also check out my upcoming interview on Harvard's podcast series, Veritalk. I chat with host Anna Fisher Pinkert about giant monsters, dystopian futures, and adaptation in a world of climate change. So we've got a lot of different things uh, happening this month, and I really hope you dig into them all and, uh, and enjoy. So with that, I'll say stay tuned and stay curious.